taking a trip out into the bush across the, the Great Rift Valley Plains um, to see what were the conditions out there. We knew that there was a drought in the area, which is, is becoming more and more common in, in southern Kenya. And as we drove hours and hours and hours, just covering a few miles of ground, we came across a, a small uh, area that had a little bit of water, but it's very sludgy. And here comes a woman who had probably been walking several miles with her container to, to reach down in the water. And that was going to be her water for the day. I, I think for many of us, we have come to believe that this is a way of life and the people that are there that, that are living in these conditions are okay with it. But the reality is that the people we saw pulling water from these holes were going to take it home and they were going to drink it and they were going to get sick. And you see what's happening there and then we go on down the road uh, to visit a village where uh, Africa Hope had been able to put in a water well for those people and just the sheer joy that the ladies at the well uh, were had on their faces uh, and just so happy and excited uh, to compare and contrast those was really impacting. We were impressed and have chosen to partner with Africa Hope primarily because of the breadth of their ministry everything from medical to education to orphanage to water projects. So Africa Hope embodies what we were looking for. So much so that, that, that we, we were just amazed by what we saw when we saw it. There are a lot of ways that um, folks from our congregation can be engaged. Uh, I think now we need to educate our body as to the needs uh, uh, through meetings and videos such as this one as to what the needs are in Africa and how they can begin to uh, gain an understanding of how they might uh, do that and then to find leadership among those people who are interested to uh, begin to form a task force uh, focusing on uh, Africa and then take some more short-term trips to solidify exactly what it is we'll do there. And really just in awe, when you think about Africa and the continent and the challenges that are there, it could easily get overwhelming. And could, could I, uh, an individual, make a difference? Could Crossroads make a difference? Could a team of five people make a difference? After being on site, yeah, it's a slam dunk answer. You could easily make a difference. Good morning. If we're going to get the job done of making disciples here, near, and far away, it is going to take the power of God and a good game plan on the part of his people. The power of God is there. The desire of this church is there. It's just a matter of getting it done. If you don't believe how important a good game plan is. Let me tell you about something I heard about 18 years ago. I was listening to Focus on the Family. They were interviewing a man by the name of Nick Hyder, a football coach in Valdosta, Georgia. 
He had become one of the winningest coaches in the country in high school football. In fact, in a 22-year span, he had won seven state titles, three national titles, had more players coming out of Valdosta, Georgia, playing NCAA Division I football than any high school in America. Dr. Dobson looked at him and said, how does that happen? He says, we have a game plan, and we work our game plan, every practice, every game. And Dr. Dobson said, what's that game plan? And he said, this is it. We get our priorities right. If public high school, I want to make sure that all my coaches and all of my students know that God is first, family is second, church family is third, citizenship, being a good person is fourth, education and profession is fifth, and football falls way down the list somewhere. And he says, if I can keep football in its proper perspective, we can keep winning championships and making good men. What he's was doing is a far cry from what we just experienced a few weeks ago in Stubbinville, Ohio, where a successful high school football team had felt entitled for years, if not decades, to participate in all the things that we saw on the news, sexual assault, degradation of human beings, and, and flaunting it over text. Another example of our culture. Our culture has changed and is changing. And we, we want to get back. Jesus is the answer. Making disciples of Jesus is the answer. And we need a game plan for that. If a high school football coach could say, and I could tell you about all the things he did to put that in order, but I don't have time. But if a high school football coach could understand and live out that God is first, guess who is first for God? Number one priority of God is you. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants us saved. Reason he sent Jesus. He wants us to understand the truth. He wants, he wants the truth to set us free from all of the enslavement that is out there so that we can be his people. In Matthew chapter 28, probably one of the most familiar passages in Scripture, beginning in verse 18, if you have your own Bible in any form or if you want to get out the Bible that's in the pew in front of you, turn it to Matthew 28. We're going to kind of stay there a little while, even though it's very familiar to you. Beginning in verse 18, <clears throat> Jesus is at this point resurrected from the dead. He is with his 11. Judas has committed suicide. They see Jesus in the resurrected form. Some just fell down in worship at Jesus. 
Others were a little bit shocked. And Jesus then says these words to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's really interesting here that there is only one imperative in this passage. It looks like a lot, but there's really only one. It's the verb that we translate, make disciples. That is the imperative thrust of this passage. There are three supporting participles that take on this imperative nature. We'll talk about all four of those imperatives. The main one and the three supporting ones. But first, think with me through this, how he framed this statement. Think about what you would say to the people that are near and dear to you if you had one last chance to speak to people to impact their lives before you were in eternity. Jesus, these are Jesus' last words. I asked my sister-in-law, Sharon, as she was dying after a six-year-long battle of cancer, dying at a way too young age, my wife's best friend and sister. I said, Sharon, when she awakened in one moment, I said, Sharon, do you have any regrets? I'm used to talking. I worked 15 years as a chaplain. I'm used to talking to those who are facing their maker. Sharon, do you have any regrets? And in her weak, subdued voice, she said, I just wish I had told more people about Jesus. You see, Jesus, these are Jesus' last words to his disciples. And it's what he wanted them to communicate to us. Without understanding this passage, you don't understand the whole of Matthew's message, and you don't understand the whole of the Bible. There are a lot of subjects in the Bible, but this is core. This is foundational. Jesus sandwiched the, the imperative between all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much authority does that leave for me? How much authority does that leave for our elders or our pastors if Jesus has it all? The only authority that we have is to the extent that Jesus is reigning and ruling in our lives. And he said he has, he has conquered death. He's raised the dead. He is raised from the dead. He has conquered diseases. He has healed the lame, the blind. He has healed them all. He has conquered dis natural disasters, the storms, the winds. They all obey him. He is taught as one who has authority, as one who knows what he's talking about. He is now risen from the dead in his resurrected state. He has conquered 
everything that we face in this life that most of the time we detest. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And I, for one, am so glad. And then he sandwiched this imperative at the end with the statement. He says, if you're making disciples, know that I am with you always, even to the end of the ages, to the end of times. Do you get that? There is never a time when God is more with us, helping us, healing us, taking care of us, helping us to sense His presence as when we are helping people to become disciples of Jesus. A disciple is not some super Christian. A disciple is a learner of Jesus. He learns of Jesus, and then he wants to learn from Jesus. He's a pupil. He's a student. She's a follower, an imitator. That's what a disciple is. I want to learn from him. Everything is determined by my understanding of Jesus and what he showed me in this life through his teaching, through his life, through his interaction with people. Make disciples of Jesus and make disciples of all nations. Some have said that's more people groups and I believe that to be right. Make disciples of all the nations, of all the people. I actually surveyed a couple of the best critical commentaries that exist about what these words mean. And I actually emailed two of my theologian friends. One is actually a, a nephew of my, uh, my wife who is a Greek scholar that teaches at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Another guy lives in Houston, Texas. And I said, what does, what does this mean? Yes, it means nations and all people. It just means everybody. God wants everybody to know about Jesus, to follow Jesus, to receive the blessings that God wants to give us. That's what God wants. Wants everybody to know about it. And so that's the imperative. Make disciples. Make learners. Make people who know about Jesus, then want to learn about Jesus. One of our baptismal that we had at the first service. The guy came out of the water, been putting it off for years. He came out of the water and he says, I finally had to say yes. And he said, my goal is, is from now on to say yes. Isn't that what disciples do? They say yes to Jesus and the things of Jesus. That's the reason there are three supporting imperative participles in this passage. Those three imperatives could be translated going, baptizing, and teaching. They take on the imperative nature 
And so they were translated, the first one, just go. But it really could be translated, easily translated, going, as you go. And so God calls us to make disciples as we are going about our business, as we are going about our day-to-day. You don't have to be some, you know, lofty somebody who has received a call that from a bright light. You can be, but you don't have to be. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you are, as you're going about your daily life, you want to put in a good word for Jesus who has saved you. But you can also intentionally go. The, wor- the word does include that. It is imperative. Do Make plans to intentionally go across the street and talk to your neighbor, across town and talk to people there that may be unchurched, or across the country, or across the world, or to one of those people groups that don't know about Jesus at all, because there's nobody there to tell them, or very few to tell them. There are over 7,000 of those groups. You can... You can go do it as you're going, and, and, and then when God touches your heart, go. When Susan and I were finishing up college, we had a plan. Our plan was to go to the Gulf Coast and treat ourselves to a vacation around Destin, Florida. Still love to do that. Still don't get to do it as much as I'd like to. The only problem was is that a missionary came through Thirsty, Arkansas, where we were in college. And I heard him speak, and I went home at lunch, and I said, Susan, we've been married about a year. I said, Susan, instead of going to Florida when we graduate this May, let's, uh, let's go to Brazil. And she said, you're crazy. <laughs> that was the end of that conversation. That night, Susan went to a ladies' Bible class on campus, students. And she was talking to one of her good friends and said, you know what my crazy husband said? He wants us to go to Brazil this summer. And lo and behold, unknown to Susan, this friend of hers said, you ought to go. I went last summer and my life has been changed. Susan comes back home and says, we're going to Brazil this summer. (laughs) We went to Brazil and we're around the slums and unreached peoples of Brazil at the time and around missionaries who had military men, older men who had retired from the military and had ended up in Brazil, our publishers that had felt the call to go to, and we were around all of these people in Belo Horizonte and Sao Paulo for six weeks, and Susan and I looked at each other and cried when we knew that God was not going to let us go back to Mississippi, where we had intended only to leave there long enough to get our education and go back, because we knew we had to go to Brazil in order to be obedient to the Lord. It forever changed our lives, our children's lives. 
and a lot of other lives. Go. As you go, tell. Intentionally go to other places. But he also says, supporting that main imperative, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, up until this time for centuries, there had been the ceremonial washing that took place of the Jews. Archaeologists have actually found in rich Jews' homes something that looks like our typical baptistry of the day because they were practicing ceremonial washings that involved their religion. John the Baptist came on the scene and he was baptizing in the River Jordan for the forgiveness of sin or for the remission of sins. Jesus says, from this point on, that baptism is in my name. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. From this point on, it is in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, for we are one. It changed baptism forever to honoring and recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I remember when I was baptized at about 14. I first thought of it when I was nine. My mom started going to church when I was eight. I said to mom at nine, I said, I'm going to be baptized. She said, why? I said, because Dale Ford is. She said, that ain't good enough. At 14, God touched my heart in a revival. I didn't ask my mom this time. I just went forward. And I was walking across that afternoon after, over that cow pasture with a distant cousin. And I was telling him about what I had experienced that morning at church and how I felt cleaner and fresher than I'd ever knew existed. I don't know how God did that or why he did it. I just know it happened. Last night, there was a young lady came up to me afterwards and says, you don't recognize me, do you? And I said, no. You kind of look familiar. She says, I haven't seen you since my dad died at St. Mary's. I'm Erica. She had about six kids with her. Been tending here for several months. She said, I made my dad two promises. One, that I'd be a good parent like he had been a good parent to me. Because then I had the flashback. As a single parent, she was in all kind of trouble at 14. And he had invited me over to her house to try to talk some Jesus to her. And I looked at her and I said, have you given your life to the Lord, made your profession of faith and been baptized? And she said, no, I haven't. But I am so ready. And we had a moment right over there as we 
not only baptized her into the Lord, but in honor of her dad. We've had several baptisms last night, several this morning, several who came during the, the old type altar call. You see, because baptism is now, and since Jesus' resurrection and ascension is in his name, it is not to become a member of some denomination or some movement or some church. It is simply it, disciples are baptized because Jesus was baptized, because he taught baptism, because he did it, and he asked us to teach others about it. And then he said, also the fourth imperative in here is you keep teaching them. It's not just enough to go. It's not just enough to disciple. It's not just enough to baptize. You got to keep teaching them. And you teach them to observe all the things Jesus. Everything that is about Jesus you teach. And you ground them in the Lord. And you teach them. And if you will do that, I will be with you always. You see, there's a reason that trustworthy say, saying back in 1 Timothy includes God our Savior wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The truth really sets us free. It clarifies. It identifies. It makes Everything possible. And so you keep teaching. If you don't, they do fall through the cracks. Satan snatches them away. So you keep teaching. There are two courses here that you need to be really familiar with that Crossroads offers. One is Crossing Cultures 101. That's where you learn about how to get involved in making disciples far away. But it's good information if you're making them as you go, right in your own neighborhood. It's really over, almost 400 people have taken it. It'd be good for you. It'll help put some flesh on what I'm talking about this morning. There's a new course coming down the pike, Momentum, the six-lesson course, the six-weeks course that will be offered soon. And it will tell you about the influence of Jesus from the Garden of Eden all the way to the present day. And there are some incredible things happening around the world. More people becoming Christians today than at any other time in history. Now here in America and Europe, we may be slipping backwards. And that's a concern. But around the world... And we need to take care of things here, but we need to take advantage of what's going on around the world. And thank goodness we're part of a church that cares and does something about it. We just have to keep doing it. Let me try to sum up some of the things I've been saying by taking you through a few scriptures. The first one will just help us to be reminded again what I've already said over and over, that Jesus is the message that is the message. Look at Colossians 1. The Son 
is the image of the invisible God. For in him all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I mean, don't you, do you get it? Why is, why is Jesus the message? He holds everything together. If he can hold the earth suspended in atmosphere, suspended in the universe that weighs, people tell me this, six sextillion tons, not pounds, tons, and it is suspended precisely at a 23 degree angle so that there can be life on the earth, and seasons to enjoy. If he can hold the earth that he created together like that, do you think that he can hold your life together? I know he holds this one together. You know, it doesn't get much more dysfunctional from where I came from. It just, it doesn't. You see, when I was trying to preach in that little bitty rural Mississippi church, I would be so nervous that my leg would start bouncing. Fortunately, we had a pulpit and I could hide and I'd, I'd lean my weight over on it to try to make it calm down. I'm way too insecure to be up here in front of you today. But my confidence is in the Lord. For he holds everything together, including me. Now, Susan helps. I really miss her sitting there, but she had to go back to the nursery and help take care of some babies. By the way, if enough of you would volunteer for that, I could have her up here. Get the message right. Everything works then. The message is not end times or spiritual warfare or baptism or any of those things. They are those things only to the extent that they fit into the message of Jesus. And then they make sense. Outside of Jesus, the context of Jesus, they just become some doctrine that divides. The second thing you need to do is this passage here in Mark chapter 5. You need to learn to just go and tell. Just go and tell. Like Jesus told the man who was demon-possessed that was full of a legion of demons. Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed 
begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And the people were amazed. Has God done anything for you? Has he saved you? Has God shown his mercy on you? And does he continually show mercy on you in spite of the difficulties in life? Then you've got something to tell. Go and tell it. It's that simple. My mom was born on one side of the river. Moved to the other side of the river when she married my dad. We, she started going to church when I was eight. I don't remember a time going to church that we didn't stop and pick somebody else up. They were usually distant cousins. They were all distant cousins in Mississippi. <laughs> We'd stop at the Flippo place and the Whitaker place and any other place. Because my mom had invited people to go with her where she had found something that would hold her world together. And when the family car would break down, and, it, and there were 10 of us, and we were piling more people in there. But when the family car would break down, we'd go in the single cab pickup truck, the F-100, and we'd be in there five across and three deep. It didn't matter to my mom. She was wanting people to learn about Jesus. Go and tell. You've got something to tell. I don't care who you are. Figure out what it is and go and tell how much the Lord has done for you. And then help send. Look at that passage in Romans chapter 10. If you, go, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. How then can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I mean, help us. Help us send those who are willing and called to go. You can, be an encourager. In fact, I have that how beautiful the feet are inscribed on a little wooden plaque that I've had with me for almost 40 years that a woodcarver made to encourage me and put Romans 10's. 16 on it and he carved out a foot and he reminded me of that if you're making disciples your feet are even beautiful to God and they're beautiful to the people that you share your faith with as well they represent sending and going and then pray Colossians chapter 4 devote yourselves to prayer and pray that God may open a door so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that we may proclaim it clearly. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. 
Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace because you've experienced so much of it. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Prayer breaks down strongholds. It prepares. It encourages. It lifts up. It protects us from the evil one. Pray, pray, pray that disciples may be made. This story could have easily been told about my father. It was told by Jerry Clower, the Grand Ole Opry Hall of Fame storyteller. It's a fishing story about his cousin, Marcel, who was catching fish when nobody else was catching fish. Everybody wanted to know, including the local game warden. So he invited the game warden to go with him. Got hooked up the boat, went down to the river, launched the boat, got in the river. They're going down the river. Marcel stops, reaches behind the seat, picks up a few stick of dynamite, lights it, drops it in the river. It sinks down to the bottom and boom. Up come floating fish. He's netting them. The game warden, flabbergasted, in shock. You can't do that. You've just broken every law, every game and fish commission law in the state of Mississippi. You will, by that time, Marcel has picked up another stick of dynamite. (laughs) He lights it and tosses it over to the game warden. The game warden in further shock says that Marcel says to him in shock, he says, are you going to sit there or fish? Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power, the word for dynamite, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Oh my goodness, God has tossed us the gospel, and it is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. I hope he's brought it to you. I hope it is powerfully changing your lives. If not, are you going to sit there? Are you going to let your trust and belief in the risen Savior radically and powerfully change your life? And if He has brought you salvation, are you going to sit there? Or are you going to go and tell what great things the Lord has done for you as you go and as you intentionally go? Are you going to sit there if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and have never experience the cleansing power of being baptized into Jesus' name. We had several that came down this morning. Ken is in the baptistry waiting on you. We'll take your profession of faith today and immerse you into Jesus Christ. And your life will never be the same. You'll have to keep saying yes, but your life will never be the same. Are you going to sit there? Or are you going to help us send and help us pray And help us take care of those who are willing to go. You can't just sit there 
if you're holding the power of God in your life. You have to make disciples. How will you participate?